Thank you, Papa John. <laughs> and thank you to all of you, uh, Christ the King Grace. As a church, um, I am serving with John in the missionary society that uh, he founded and leads called NAMS. I'm the global executive. And this week is special for us because we're on the cusp of having our global leaders join us uh, for the next few days in uh, just outside of Georgetown, Gover Plantation. Sadly, one of our uh, Latin America leaders caught COVID uh, yesterday, so he can't travel. But everybody else should be here, and we're looking forward to this time. I want to say on behalf of NAMS, thank you to Christ the King as a church and as a parish for your support uh, for, of NAMS over the years. It has been a constant support. You've been one of, if not the uh, top supporting parish for the work of NAMS in the United States. And we've been so blessed. We are really grateful to you uh, for that. And uh, I pray that God will continue to help Christ the King as a church be involved in global mission. We so need the work of global mission to be uh, in the, the eyesight and the vision of the local church, local parishes all over this country because there is a world to be reached. It's, we often forget that uh, Americans only make up 5% of the world's population. There's a big world out there. We are a resurrection people. In the afterglow of Easter last Sunday, it's glorious for us to be together and to continue to enjoy that fact that in the light of Jesus' resurrection, everything is changed. It frames and it colors who we are. We are a resurrection people. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19 that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, we are to be the most pitied of all men, of all people. But he goes on to say very quickly, but thanks be to God, Jesus did rise from the dead, the first fruits, the guarantee of all those who have fallen asleep. And therefore we have this great hope. We have good news for a world that's full of bad news, quite frankly, and it seems to be getting worse. Good, bad news, and then terrible news. Reminds me of a story of a, a man who went to see the doctor uh, for some tests. Uh, he wasn't sure what was wrong with his, himself, and, and he came home the next week, and, and uh, the hospital called, the doctor called, and he said, the doctor said to the man, well, I have bad news, and terrible news for you. Your, your test results have come in. Bad news and terrible news. And so the man said, well, what's the bad news? And the doctor said, well, I'm afraid you only have 24 hours left to live. The man said, that's the bad news? What's the terrible news? He said, well, we couldn't reach you yesterday. <laughs> bad news, terrible news. It seems every time we turn on the television or we look at the news or we read it on the internet, it just gets worse. We live in a world that is, that is just drowning in, in, the, in the bad news. And, and worst of all is, the, is that fear of, of impending death. 
I mean, everyone, nobody wants to talk about it, but we, our, our days are all numbered. Who knows, tomorrow, you know, I might go. Some of us live with, with uh, the sense that we, might, we don't have long to live on this earth. Death is, is a thing to be feared in this world. And it comes through sin, as we know from our gospel, from the scriptures. But people are in the grip of the fear of death all over this country, all over the world. But the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the bloody cross, the empty tomb, God has made a way for us to come home to him, eternal life, and it begins today. The moment you say, Jesus, be my Lord, be my Savior, I had it with this life. I don't want to live for myself. I want to live for you. What you've done for me, I receive. You become resurrection people. It's the antidote for all the hopelessness and the fear of death and the fear of anything else this world has throwing at us every day. As somebody has said, the best pill in the world is the gospel. Right? We need it today. So let's come to our passage because this passage today is so full of truth that we need to receive. And as I read through it with you, um, I'd like to see, for us to, to notice that Jesus comes amongst the, the disciples who are fearful and hiding away. And in his resurrection appearance here with them, he offers them four things, four gifts. Let's see what they are for us today. Verse 19, it's the evening of the day, the first day of the week. This is the first evening of the resurrection. Jesus has thus far appeared, appeared to Mary Magdalene. We know he appeared first to the women. May that encourage our sisters that Jesus chose to show himself uh, first to them. He is Lord of men and women. He reveals himself to all of us. And now he comes to his disciples, and they are the ones hiding away in the room, locked doors. They're thinking, they've taken Jesus out. Where next? And so they're, they're, they're covering in fear. They don't know what to do. They've lost hope. They, they have no sense of a future anymore, locked in this room. Think about Jesus, though. You can put him in a guarded and sealed tomb, and his resurrection power will burst him, bust him out of it. And so locked doors are, are nothing to him, really. Suddenly, there he is, standing in the midst of them. What a glorious thing is. Can you imagine? Suddenly, Jesus is there with them. Sometimes in our deepest fears, in our moments of doubt, in the moments when we think we've lost it, depression, thinking about the future, we don't know what to do. May the living Christ come and stand in the midst of you when you've locked yourself out from the world and you think there's no hope. May he come and stand in your midst. And let's see what he says to them. The very first thing he says to them is, peace be with you, right? Peace be with you. He says it twice, verse uh, 19 and verse 21. And of course, we know this was actually a common greeting uh, for the Hebraic peoples, the Jewish peoples. They use the word shalom. Even to this day, uh, they will say, avenu shalom alechem, which basically means I bring you peace, right? Or peace be with you. And it's interesting because we don't see Jesus using this phrase 
in other parts of the gospel. But here he is at the, at the, the, the resurrection, the first morning, the first evening, sorry, of the resurrection. And the very first thing he says is shalom, peace be with you. Translates as peace. But of course, for English speakers, like you and me, we think of peace as just calmness of spirit, you know, um, sitting by the beach, enjoying the waves as they come in. Or, or the absence of war. You know, when there's no war, then we think of it as peace. But this word that has been translated from the Hebrew, shalom, is such a rich, biblical word. It, ha- it means so much more than the absence of conflict. It's more, it, it, it's more akin to wholeness, to health, to total well-being. Listen to what one Bible commentator wrote. Shalom experienced is multidimensional, complete well-being, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. It flows from all of one's relationships being put right with God, within oneself, and with others. So when we think about Jesus coming in their midst and saying, Aveni shalom alachem, peace be with you, this is not just, oh, hi, how are you? This is Jesus speaking his peace to them. Think about the context in which he's saying this. He has finished his glorious work of atonement and redemption for us on the cross. God has raised him to life. The work is finished in every sense, and the new age of God's kingdom has dawned upon them. And now he's standing in the midst of this fearful bunch of his disciples, rather miserable lot, really. And in the light of all this, his first words to them are shalom. He offers it twice, as I said. And then later on, when Thomas, who was missing then, is in their midst, he says the same, peace be with you. Jesus had already told them earlier in the upper room before he was crucified, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I love that phrase, you know, do not let your hearts be troubled because it tells me every day I have a choice. Do I, am I going to let my heart be troubled? Am I going to let myself be afraid? Or am I going to take Jesus' word seriously, my peace I give you. If you receive his peace, there's no room for those fears. There's no room for a troubled soul. But now in the aftermath of the cross, Jesus stands there and says, Shalom to you. He freely offers it. Peace, wholeness, reconciliation to God and to one another. Cleansing, everlasting life. It's all captured in that first gift as the resurrected Christ offers to us his resurrection people. Second gift, let's read on. He said this, he shows them his hands and his sight. He wants them to know it's really him, right? His disciples then suddenly, fearful one minute, joyful and glad the other when they saw the Lord. Jesus says to them, peace be with you. Here's the second thing. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. He is giving them a mission. They and we, by extension, are gifted a glorious new 
calling. We were in the class earlier, John was telling the story of Nams, and it's, so, it's ever so true that there is only one mission that Jesus ever gave, the resurrected Jesus ever gave his church. We know it as the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Of course, in every gospel, there is a, a Great Commission of sorts, and even in the book of Acts, Acts 1, 8. In each instance, Jesus was calling the first apostles and then to all of us because it's for all times, right? Until for, and all peoples. So it has to involve us. We are all called into this mission. This is a mission for us. We're all called to be a missionary band of disciple makers cast out into the wide oceans of the world to catch fish for Jesus. This is your work. This is my work. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, think about this. God so loved the world that he sent a missionary into the world. Then the missionary was his beloved son, the greatest missionary that ever was. And now that missionary says to the disciples and to us, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You and me today are a sent people. Not everybody is going to go across the oceans to some far distant place. Some of us are. But all of us, wherever we are, we're sent out to be with our neighbors, to be with our family, to be with our colleagues, to be with the people we, we live with. We are sent to them. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Second gift. May we receive that today. Third gift, he says to them, verse 22, when he said this, when he told them, now you have a mission to do, this is really important because it connects. The third thing he says was, when he said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed on them. That's really interesting, right? He's, he's resurrected, so there's no bad breath in him, right? It's... <laughs> It's pure Holy Spirit breath. It's fascinating um, because, of course, we know from the Hebrew uh, that the, the very word translated Holy Spirit, ruach, really means the wind of the Spirit or the breath of God. Okay, we, we translate it into, uh, in Greek, hagios pneuma. You know, we know someone has pneumonia. It has to do with breath. And so Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about Genesis 2, 7, when God made from uh, the, the first man and the first woman. What did he do to, in, into them? He breathed into them. They came alive. Here are this group of timid disciples and Jesus breathes new life into them. Maybe today you feel weak. You feel what am I? You feel far away. You, you feel like a, a little clump of dirt. But God wants today to raise you up and breathe by his spirit into you new life. That you will become, as they were, energized, renewed, remade into new people. We are a resurrection people. He wants you today to receive his spirit you know, theologians debate 
uh, whether at this very moment they actually physically received the Spirit, or wasn't it not later on at Pentecost, 50 days later, when the Spirit descended in power, that he filled them? I remember the great Bible teacher David Pawson saying that in his mind this was perhaps like a dress rehearsal for Pentecost as Jesus made the sound of the wind as he breathed on them. You know, and so when Pentecost happened and the wind of the Spirit came and they heard the sound of the mighty wind, they would remember it's the Holy Spirit coming. Perhaps, right? But all the same, now or soon, the gift of the Spirit is the third gift that they were to receive in the wake of the resurrection. And so with us, the resurrected Christ wants to give us his Spirit. This is brought clearly in, in the Gospel of Acts sorry, in the Gospel of Luke and then in, in the follow-up, the book of Acts, both of which refer specifically Jesus telling them to wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, the gift that, as, Paul descri as Peter describes it in Acts 2.39, this gift is for us and for all our children and for all who are far off who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are baptized. They will receive this gift. You and I receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, if you, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. With the receiving of the Holy Spirit comes this concomitant authority, if you like. The Holy Spirit, when he comes and when he speaks, we become agents of the Spirit to bring this gospel, this word out to others, to speak a word that, that perhaps convicts people, that helps to, to judge them, show them that they need a savior. It bears witness um, to the offer of the gospel. And people, when they hear the witness of the Spirit through us, they have a choice. They either receive the forgiveness from God by receiving his word, or that forgiveness is withheld. It's denied them because they refuse to believe the good news and obey it. There is authority that comes to us, ministers of the Holy Spirit, ministers of the gospel. It's something serious. So three gifts we've seen already that the risen Christ offers to them and to us in the light of his resurrection. Shalom, his peace a mission that follows in his footsteps, and the Holy Spirit to fill and empower us to do his work to the ends of the earth. Now let's look at the fourth gift, which might not be entirely obvious at first. We move on to Thomas. Thomas was not with them when he, he appeared. And, uh, you know, Thomas has a bad reputation, right? Everybody knows a doubting Thomas. Poor Thomas. How many of us, though, if we were in his shoes, think about it, would perhaps have been equally disbelieving. We probably would, would ourselves have demanded some visible proof. Come on, are you telling me he really came back to life? Sounds ridiculous, right? So Thomas says, unless I see, I will not believe. Unless I see for myself. It's the default position of many a skeptic, many an agnostic today. To many people, a God who raises 
someone from the dead is a step too far. About 20 years ago in Britain, researchers were going door to door and they were trying to do a survey on, on people's opinions of God. And one of the questions was, do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of human affairs, who performs miracles? One man answered, no, I don't believe in that God. I just believe in the ordinary God. When published, the study took its title from the response of that man, who was seen as rather typical of many of the respondents, the ordinary God. How many of us live amongst people who, who may or may not believe in this ordinary God? He might be up there, you know, I might turn to him in times of crisis, but I don't really believe that he would ever do something so great to turn my life around. I mean, I don't even believe he would bring Jesus back to life. It, it must have been just a myth. It must have been just a legend that was made up. This kind of unbelief that constrains them and prevents them. But that, I don't think that's so much Thomas's problem. Thomas is not ex expressing a kind of faithlessness, and I don't believe any of this. Not, he's not saying he has a unbelief in a particular vision of God. He just has doubts. You know, it's kind of natural. I, I'm not quite sure. I want to see. Come on, guys. You tell me, but I need to see for myself. He's not saying he won't believe, but he wants proof. Os Guinness, the great author and apologist, wrote a book on doubt. He called it God in the Dark, The Assurance of Faith Beyond the Shadow of Doubt. It was a great book on the right use of our doubts and how they can lead us to a greater faith. Listen to what he says. He says, contrary to widespread misunderstanding, doubt is not the same as unbelief. So it is not the opposite of faith. Rather, doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. Therefore, he says, he adds, there is on one hand an open-minded uncertainty of doubt, and on the other hand, in contrast, the close-minded certainty of unbelief. It's not wrong to have doubts. It's what do you do with those doubts that matter. Why do you think Jesus bothered to appear in a room later on with Thomas and to give him the evidence he so craved for, he so demanded? I mean, Jesus could have left him in the dark and just worked with the others. But no, graciously Jesus comes to him. Graciously he comes to us even in our moments of doubt so that as we see face to face the risen Savior before us, those doubts disappear. Sincere doubters can become great believers if their doubts are brought to the light of Jesus. We're all called to be transitional doubters, right? Don't stay in those doubts. Examine them. Bring them to the Lord. Cry out to him, Lord, help me. I'm not sure about this. Search the scriptures because they are the word of God made certain. They'll last forever. Seek God, seek the counsel of others and ask God to clear away your doubts and to lead you like Thomas to a great faith. We all need that.
Many years ago, uh, the first place that John sent me as a young Nam's guy uh, was to England. And we ended up uh, in a little town called Colchester helping a church plant. And uh, we discovered at the edge of the town there was a great university, uni University of Essex, and it was filled with international students. And so God gave to me, a young man, uh, the opportunity to begin a campus ministry reaching students of the nations. And I so thank God because I had a, a bunch of wonderful uh, young leaders from the nations. And God graciously showed himself five wonderful uh, years of, of, of favor. You know, people from the nations coming to him and meeting with him in that community that we had groups, small groups, disciple-making groups, uh, gatherings, we'd go on retreats, the, the, the spirit would be poured out. Uh, people would be so deeply touched. And uh, often they were coming to us as, as unbelievers, you know, people like from China or, or Japan or parts of Latin America and with no faith. And God would graciously show himself to them. I remember there was a young girl from Japan. Her name was Michiko. And a little petite girl with a soft voice. And she wasn't a believer as most people in Japan aren't. Uh, but she was welcomed by us. She began to come to some of our groups. We loved her. She was such a lovely girl. And, and so we would invite her for meals. And, and we would say, come and join us for our, our, our Bible discovery groups. You know, we'd read the scriptures. And we'd have all these non-Christians. And we'll let them ask any questions as we're reading to, and try to answer them and pray that God would open their eyes. And, you know, she wasn't sure about all this Christian stuff. I mean, you know, if you know the Japanese, it's, it's hard for them to accept what, what, you know, what they read here. She had two big problems with the Christian faith. One, she, she struggled with this idea that there was only, that, that the God of the Bible was the only God there is. You know, they say in Asia, the question is not so much, is there a God, but which God? So many gods. And she was questioning, you know, is this the, the real God who made everything? You know, the Bible, it sounds so amazing. Is he really the only God? And her second question was, how can you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? That, that to her, to her scientific rational mind was just out, out of the way. But bit by bit, as we loved her and welcomed her, and she even began to help with singing in the, in the church on Sunday, a church plant, she was just loved. And God began to touch her heart. The reckless love of God began to chase her down. And I'll never forget the day that she told us that she came to this realization that this God of the scriptures, of the gospel, of, of what she's read about and heard about Jesus Christ, was the living God. He created everything, I believe. The Holy Spirit gave her faith. And from that, it was a very small step then because she said, well, if, if God is God, then raising Jesus from the dead is nothing if he's the author of life. And so she believed, she was baptized, uh, she was sent back to Japan. We've kept in touch, I think the leaders of our church, uh, the church plant in England kept in touch with her for many years. She was well discipled actually by a missionary, an English missionary who had been with OMF in Japan and been back in Colchester, discipled her, uh, you know, with the language. Wonderful. She was brought on that journey. And like Thomas, she came face to face with the living Christ. She turned to him 
from disbelief to belief. And Thomas' response was one of total, unadulterated worship. When Thomas saw Jesus graciously showing him all the scars, all the, the wounds, Thomas falls on his knees, probably, but he answered, My Lord and my God. It's the first time in any of the Gospels that such an open, amazing confession of the deity of Christ is made. You are my Lord and you are my God. May God grant us to also realize that he is my Lord and my God. Not just someone else's, not just of the church, but you and me. And so Thomas was changed. And notice Jesus didn't refuse his worship, accepted him, but asked him the question, have you believed simply because you've seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't know about you, but that sounds like you and me, right? We have not seen and yet we have believed. Because true faith is not simply based on seeing and then believing. It's actually the opposite. You believe in order to see. Jesus says we are blessed when we believe and then we see. This is the witness that has been passed down to us by the apostles. The faith once delivered. We have received it as we heard in our epistle reading, 1 Peter 1, 3-4. Peter talks about us being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus so that we receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, no sell by date, kept in heaven for you. It's there and it's here and it's now because you believe. He would go on to say in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you believe in him and you are filled with inexpressible joy. I've traveled around the world by God's grace and through the work of NAMS, and I can tell you everywhere that there are disciples of Jesus Christ, there is joy. Wonderful, inexpressible, overflowing, overwhelming joy because the risen Christ has brought us new life. Thomas saw this and Thomas uttered a confession of faith. True faith. Contra Thomas' demands to see in order to believe is based on trusting God over and beyond what we can explain or even see or even experience. It's based on who we know, who we trust, not simply on what we can understand. We believe indeed in order to see. Think about it, in Jesus' time, how many people saw him do miracles? And who, who is he left with? Eleven, a miserable lot of, of cowering disciples in a room, locked doors. How many saw, but so few believed? How many heard, but very few followed him? But in the scriptures, the holy men and women of God, the opposite is true. The apostle Paul the Apostle Paul was blinded. Only after he was blinded by the light of Christ did he begin to see truly. 
I think of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptizer, who could only speak when he was made dumb, but he could only speak when he spoke the word of faith. His name is John. Faith comes first. If we are truly to see and to hear and to proclaim and to do the work of God by our works, by our words, we must have faith first. Therefore, this certain faith is the final gift that the resurrected Jesus offers to them and offers to us. We can trust him with our lives, even though we don't see him, because we can know his peace, we can be filled by his spirit, we can walk in his footsteps into mission in the world, and we can have a faith that is lasting and enduring. It's the faith, as the writer of, of the Hebrews tells us, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We believe first, and then we will see. Thomas saw Jesus scarred but alive, and it brought a transformation within him. But we too, though we do not yet see, can live this transformed life, a transformed witness. His doubts vanished in the light of Jesus, and an unshakable faith came to Thomas. Thomas, like all the other apostles, according to, to our, our, our legends, our history, all of them died outside of Israel, all of the, uh, the 12 apostles. Thomas himself was supposed to have gone to India, to the part of India where my ancestors on my mom's side come from, Kerala, southwest India, bringing the gospel to them. The story is told, they sold, or so they say, he was uh, in the southeast, in Tamil Nadu state, when uh, some Hindus... In, enraged by his preaching of the gospel, killed him. They, they put a, a spear through his side. He died. But apparently before he died, he made a prophecy, so we are told. He said he prophesied that in his dying breath, missionaries, dis, missionary disciples would go from the south of India to the north. And lo and behold, 20 centuries later, today in India, the greatest missionary force in India are Indian Christians from the south taking the gospel to the north. One of our colleagues is from Kerala, where Thomas was, and he's working in the Hindu heartland of a state called Haryana, bringing the gospel to thousands of villages. Thomas went with great faith, so we can, as we recognize Jesus as our Lord and our God, so we can go as the Father sent him, the Father will send us. Coming to the end, before this epilogue in 21, John gives us a purpose statement for this book, this gospel. Jesus did many other signs, too many to write down, but these are written, these few, these seven particular, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you may say, my Lord and my God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Today, the living, resurrected Jesus stands in our midst. Where are you with him today? Do you still cover in fear, like the disciples? Do you still have doubts like Thomas and demand to know? Are you still 
far away from him. Well, he wants to come close to you. He wants to bring you his shalom. He wants to give you of his Holy Spirit. He wants to call you into his mission in the world. And he wants to give you an enduring faith. Jesus said, what's the point if you gain the whole world, but if you are going to lose your soul? If you come to Jesus, it's worth giving everything else up. Because when you find him, you will find peace, you will find joy, you will find everlasting life. And you will have that hope. You will not fear death. Death to us, the scriptures, the gospels, and the epistles start to call death asleep, a sleeping. Right? Why? Because we're going to be awakened one day, like Jesus, to a new resurrected life forever with him. I'm looking forward to him. I don't know about you. I hope you can see it's worth it. Let me end with a, with a little story about my maternal grandparents. As I said, they came from a part of India called Kerala, southwest India. My grandfather and my grandmother were what they call Brahmins, which is the highest caste of the Hindu religion, the priestly caste. In fact, my grandmother, uh, her family were what they call Nambudaris, the high priestly caste. So they were holy Hindus, you know, Nobody touched them to this day. The, the Brahmins are the hardest uh, group among the Hindus to reach because they are sacred and nobody touches them. But by the grace of God, when my grandparents were, was, were young, an English missionary, CMS missionary, Reverend John Osmerston, God, God, thank you God for him, came and witnessed to them, shared the gospel with them. And uh, there was another English teacher, I think his name was George. I, my, my middle name is George because I'm named after my grandfather. My grandfather converted and took the name of that teacher who also helped him to come to faith. Another Englishman called George. And so my grandfather became George Pisharadi. And of course, when they converted and were baptized, all hell broke loose. Brahmins, you know, Brahmins never convert. You, if you convert, you've, you've completely, you know, turned against the traditions of your ancestors. And so the, the, the family wanted to do them harm. They were told by their parents, my great-grandparents, you better leave. They're coming for you. They left. They left India. They took a boat and went to Singapore. They arrived in 1919, my grandparents. And so my mother and her sisters were born in Singapore. My grandparents were cut off from the family. We don't know our ancestry in, in Kerala. Um, they, he never went back. They never went back to India. What a terrible thing it was. Then they lived through the war years in Singapore when it fell to the Japanese, you know. Um, but all through that time, my, my aunties, especially because my mom was the youngest, my aunties tell us that my, my grandfather in particular, my grandmother as well, they had a great faith. They lost everything, but they found Jesus. My grandfather was a great musician. He was an accountant. He worked in our local church, Anglican church, but he composed Malayalam hymns in the language. And, uh, you know, God would meet their needs through the warriors. They, I remember a story auntie, my auntie told once they had no money. You know, there's such terrible times the Japanese were ruling. People were starving. And he was coming home from work on his bicycle and he was crying out to God. He had not, nothing to feed the family. And suddenly in the field, he found a, a, a note, a currency note, 
and there was no one there. He wanted to give it back. Nobody was there, and he took it, and he got food that day, and God provided for the family. Stories like that. Um, a few days before he died, he had a vision, and he saw Jesus in the clouds beckoning to him. And my grandfather was filled with this inexpressible joy, and he passed away. I'm part of his legacy. Um, many of his, children, his grandchildren and children have gone on to live and serve and love this same Lord. Two of his grandchildren, myself and another cousin, are ministers of the gospel. My grandfather would certainly say that living for Jesus was worth it, though he lost everything. My Lord and my God. Brothers and sisters, we are a resurrection people. Let us treasure the gift that the living Christ standing among us today offers to us. The gift of true shalom. The gift of a gospel mission. You have a mission to go out into the world, into your neighborhoods and your families to share him. You have the Holy Spirit in you, filling you as he filled the disciples. And we have an enduring faith that will last through the ages until he comes back again and until we are with him in that eternity. May we make known his name forever. May we be like Thomas, not only to have our doubts dusted away, but to fall on our knees and declare him as Lord and then to go on into mission in the world for him and with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for our risen Jesus. Lord, I pray that every one of us here and those listening may indeed, like Thomas, make that great confession, my Lord and my God. May we follow him with our all. May we receive from him the gifts that he freely offers us, having finished the work of salvation on the cross for us, having left an empty tomb as a witness that he truly is the beloved Son of God. We are to listen to him and we are to worship him today. Help us, Lord, to go on from this, to go on to live our lives in however many days of our lives may yet remain. Lord, may we live for you and then go on into eternity, glorifying you in this never-ending song. So, Father, we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.